Welcome to That Said. I'm Michael Zeldin. On today's special program, I'll be speaking with Jennifer Ho, who is a professor in the Department of Ethnic Studies and the director of the Center for Humanities and the Arts at the University of Colorado Boulder. She is the president of the Association for Asian American Studies. Jennifer is also the author of many books, including Racial Ambiguity in Asian American Culture, which won the 2016 South Atlantic Modern Languages Association Award for Best Monograph. Jennifer, welcome to That Said. Thank you. Really happy to be here. So for our audience, we always like to begin by saying, tell us about yourself. How did you come to be where you are? The the trajectory of people is never the same, and there's nothing that's linear about getting from the beginning to where you are now, and I always like to have that story told. Absolutely. So I, you know, I think it's really important to start with origins, although I'm not going to, I'm not going to take up the entire time talking about that. But um, the way that I, I like to, um, the way that I'm introduced on my Facebook, on my um, faculty webpage, for example, is I start by saying that I am um, the child of a refugee father from China and an immigrant mother from Jamaica. And I want to be clear, because I think this, this is a little bit um, ambiguous for people who aren't familiar with Jamaica. Her parents, my grandparents, were themselves immigrants from Hong Kong. And the reason I think it's really important to begin there is that the, ex- the expertise that I have is definitely informed by my graduate work, by the writing and the teaching that I do as an Asian American studies scholar, as a critical race studies scholar. But it is also informed by my lived experience, and that's what the CNN piece was trying to really capture, that um, I have studied Asian American history, literature, culture, but I have also lived um, the life of an Asian American woman who is subject to white supremacy and um, racism and sexism. Yeah, and that perspective brings to your classes that the uniqueness I think that that each of them um, has. So tell us a little bit about your your role at UC Boulder and the association, because uh, you're doing great teaching and you're and the association is doing great work. Oh, thank you. Um, so yeah, I I actually both of those roles really kind of happened simultaneously and um, brought me. So I'm a really recent resident to Colorado. Like I moved to Boulder in August of 2019, and I will have spent more time working uh, remotely than I will have setting foot on the campus of University of Colorado Boulder. Um, And taking over that role also meant taking on the role of president of my professional association, the Association for Asian American Studies. Um, In many ways, the two are sort of complementary in terms of you know, having to show up and be very public facing um, as a leader on campus, as a leader of my organization nationwide. And I'm very proud to do both of those roles because I really see in some ways the goals of the two are, are the same. It's really promoting the work of faculty who are doing tremendous research and have expertise that they want to, to show the world, um, that they want to make public facing. Um, and I think especially now, given the Atlanta shootings, and, and I, I will just say that, you know, I said that I live in Boulder. Um, obviously, having the Boulder shootings happen within a week of the Atlanta shootings has left so many people in my local geographic community reeling. Um, there are people in my class that I'm teaching in critical race theory who live across the street from the grocery store, who are tr- traumatized, right, who shop at that grocery store on a regular basis. And while I know that th- what we're talking about today, Michael, is really focused more on race and racism and specifically Asian Americans in the wake of Atlanta, you know, I just want to want to say that I think we, you know, we can't ignore the role of of gun violence and toxic masculinity that I think is threaded through both. Yeah, I think that's right. And one thing that that is interesting um, to to me is that in the conversation about the Atlanta shootings in in, in specific, a lot of people are talking talking about this as if it is a one-off, as if something uh, as terrible as this occurred once the otherwise the Asian American community, you know, has been immune from racism and, and exclusion and other things. And that couldn't be more far from the truth. I, I read a quote by um, 
Viet Nguyen, the, the Pulitzer Prize winning Vietnamese author who wrote the history of anti-Asian violence in this country goes back as long as we've had Asian immigrants in this country. And that's absolutely true. And I thought that one of the things that we'll talk about in terms of next steps toward the end of our conversation is how ignorant people are of the history of Asians in America and the degradation that they've been subjected to. So I thought maybe before we turn to the specifics of Atlanta and the Asian American experience, contemporary Asian American experience, you could give us you know, a, a lecture, professor, on the, the history of Asians in America, or at least the, the, the greatest hits. Yeah, um, I mean, that quote from Viet is so, is so true. And I think those of us who study Asian American literature, culture, society, we know this. We know from the times that we've taken our first ethnic studies classes in college. And, and that's really the problem, right? That, that the history of Asian Americans and knowledge of Asian Americans is so not, re- is not readily available. Um, and there are places that are trying to correct this. You know, so California just passed an ethnic studies requirement. And that's good because I think what we need to do is we need to start with the first wave of Chinese immigrants that came in the 19th century, just like waves of other people coming in the 19th century, and that's specifically in search of gold. So the gold rush of um, the mid-19th uh, century, right, the 49ers, 1849, set off the largest migration of people, specifically men worldwide. Um, and Chinese were among them, right? They were trying, like everyone else, they were trying to search for gold. Um, because of racism, what they quickly found out was that they were being kept out of being able to mine um, or were faced with violence. And so a lot of these Chinese men entered into um, shopkeeper roles and cleaning laundry, especially in the Sierra Nevadas where there wasn't a lot of amenities. And that's actually one of the reasons that there's an association of Asian American men with um, effeminacy, because they were doing a lot of early roles in the 19th and early 20th century that um, in the United States, you most associated with women. And, you know, people got upset that there were ch- these Chinese foreign men in the United States. And so the very first act restricting immigration based on race was the 1882 um, Chinese Exclusion Act. But what predated that was the, um, was the Page Act, which specifically um, singled out Asians, Chinese women. And it singled them out because it said, Chinese women are prostitutes and we don't want to have prostitutes coming in here bringing their disease. The association of Chinese women with prostitutes emerged out of the fact that Chinese women were oftentimes bought um, or tricked into sexual servitude. And because of this sexual servitude, developed various venereal diseases. So then, you, so you have this association, right, with Chinese women working as sex workers, working as prostitutes in Chinatown, um, servicing men of a variety of ethnic and racial backgrounds, being associated with disease because they are diseased, right? They are diseased because of their um, abusive work um, place. And uh, so the Page Act passes. Um, and then in terms of greatest hits, Michael, you know, because I know we have so many questions to get through, right? So you've got that. Um, so we've restricted immigration from China, but the Philippines, right? Is, um, is considered a colonial entity after the Spanish-American War. By the way, if anyone's unfamiliar with this history, definitely, you know, Wikipedia is your friend in this regard, right? 1930s, Watsonville riot. You have Filipino farm workers who are being attacked in Watsonville, California, um, because people are upset about immigration. And again, there's this kind of like, they are stealing our jobs, um, which, which is a familiar, sad rhetoric that we hear in the United States. Um, the Japanese, um, World War II, Japanese American internment, where 120,000 people, three quarters of whom are Japanese Americans, are incarcerated in various concentration camps. Um, and then bringing us, you know, into the late 20th century, you have the murder of Vincent Chin in the early 1980s at the hands of two white auto workers who accused this Chinese American civil engineer of stealing their jobs because they misidentify him as being Japanese. And at this time, the Detroit auto industry was taking a hit from Japan in terms of Japanese auto imports. Um, fast forward to 9-11. Um, some of the worst uh, acts of domestic terrorism, I would say, happened against people who were targeted because they were Sikh, Muslim, Arab, Middle Eastern American. And we can see the culmination of that 
in the Oak Creek massacre of 2012, where six people were gunned down by a white shooter um, in their place of worship, right? In their, in their Sikh place of worship. I bet most people who are listening to this don't even recognize the name Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Um, and then you have Atlanta. So, and Atlanta was a result of a year of hearing about China being to blame for COVID-19. Now, do I know that for sure, right? No, of course not, right? I don't know that I'm, I'm not trying to argue for causality. I have no idea what is going through the minds of the person who killed these eight people. But the fact that there is a climate of anti-Chinese slash anti-Asian racism that has exponentially risen since the pandemic hit can't possibly not be a factor in the dehumanization of Asians in America. Yeah. And what's interesting to me um, about this history is that the community is referred to as AAPI. And um, I don't think people have a complete, complete understanding of the Asian American Pacific Islander community and its constituent parts. Maybe before we get again into the details of some of the uh, Atlanta and Asian American experiences, let's at least explain to the listening audience, what is the community of people that we are talking about? Because you just mentioned um, the the Oak uh, Creek Massacre, which was against Sikhs, which I think will they're not Asians, you know, so how, how is that relevant? So educate us. <laughs> sure. So first of all, the term Asian American and the fact that you've got Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, right, which are really two groups that, that get oftentimes lumped together. Um, and the reason that they get lumped together has to do with the, op- the way that optically we think about race in the United States. So in other words, someone who is um, indigenous, indigenous Hawaiian, indigenous Samoan, um, may look or resemble um, people who are Asian. And so that's one of the reasons why we say Asian American Pacific Islander. Um, but that category encompasses people from over 50 nations. Um, so there's no, unlike the term um, Latino, Latina, Latinx, which comprises people of Latin American origins from South America as well, um, that group is largely united through language, right? Largely being Spanish speaking, although there's Brazilians in the mix as well. Um, but Asian American, there's no unifying language, right? We're talking about 50 different nations who are speaking 50, 50, you know, could be speaking a variety of languages. There's no unifying religious identification, no, no unifying political identification, food ways. Um, I mean, someone once jokingly said the only thing that unites Asians, um, Asian Americans is rice. That may or may not be true, right? Um, so it's a term that also most people we would identify as Asian American don't actually use. So the Pew um, group did a, did a survey about 10 years ago. And what they found was that only 20% of the people actually said that they identify as Asian American. So they might check off the box on a census form, but it's not an identity that they actually embrace or consider something that resonates with them. And I think that's especially true for more recent immigrants from Asia. So for example, if you had someone from Korea, they might think, why would I have anything in common with someone from Japan now that I'm here in the United States when Japan was an imperial force that colonized my country for decades? Um, And I think that's, you know, that is a valid question. This is the way that racism plays into race, right? So if we think about race and racism, we have to think about them as opposite sides of the same coin. The reason we have racial categories is that we have systems of racism that require racial categories. Yeah, yeah. So I want to, before we again turn to the specifics, I keep saying before we turn to the specifics because I'm so interested in the background because I don't want anyone to think that Atlanta was a one-off. Um, one of the things you, so you talked about the Page Act and the Exclusion Act and, and the Japanese internment, um, all horrific acts of, of, of bigotry. But I think that one of the problems that Asian Americans face too is the cultural stereotyping that we see in Full Metal Jacket or Revenge of the Nerds or Goldfinger or Chinatown. So can you talk a little bit about how American culture has shaped, I guess, prejudice against the against Asians in America, Asian American 
community because it's it's grotesque. Yeah, no, thank you for that question. Um, you know, there's in sort of activist and academic circles, there's been kind of this phrase bandied around, which is representation isn't everything. Meaning just because you have like, so for example, on Netflix right now, there's some kind of like bling empire show that um, I think is about like um, this really wealth or there's House of Ho, you know, this really wealthy Vietnamese American family, kind of like the, the Vietnamese American Kardashians. And so people, people would say like, well, look, you've got, you've got Vietnamese people, um, who have their own show and, and isn't that representation? Um, but that's not really getting at the underlying power structures of racism, right? However, I will say that because of the way, especially in the 21st century, that we understand knowledge coming from various means of entertainment and social media, there is a relationship between what is represented in popular culture and the knowledge that we gain about certain people that either reinforces or counters various stereotypes. And really, this goes back to the 19th century, right? This goes back to vaudeville and the way that the figure, and apologies for this term, the figure of the Chinaman was used on vaudeville stages, right? was used for comedic comedic effect. And then moving into the 20th century, you have the Fu Manchu, um, you know, villain, which was directly connected to yellow peril rhetoric. Yellow peril meaning um, the threat of Asia and people from Asia to the United States. And you can see yellow peril rhetoric threaded within security discourse. So it's not just even something in popular culture. It's something that I think gets taken up by the U.S. government in terms of how they are treating Asian nations and hence Asian people coming from those nations. And then moving into the late 20th century with the rise of these of film representations, right? You have Yellowface, you have Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany. And, you know, there's many ways in which I loved Breakfast at Tiffany when I was a kid growing up. And I think, you know, in hindsight, I was a little bit confused by Mickey Rooney's character, right? And just thought it was supposed to be funny. And I knew it was supposed to be funny because I'd grown up with seeing images of white men playing Chinese, Japanese, Korean figures on television. And I was thus primed and trained to see Mickey Rooney's caricature as supposed to be comedic. What I really started to realize as I started to take classes and read about Asian American history is that it's a racist caricature. Um, let me pause there. Cause you probably, no, 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 no. <laughs> Keep going. I was going to say it's the, the, the irony again of the lack of information about um, racism in um, the Asian American community is that, Blackface as a, 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 is, is totally unacceptable and understood to be totally unacceptable. Yellowface, which, as you said, was you know, present in a lot of, of, of film, vaudeville, uh, etc., seemed to be deemed benign, com- comedic. Absolutely. And, and while I think we may not see as many live action yellow face roles, um, there's, been, um, there's a great documentary made by Hari Kondabalu, called The Problem with Apu. Um, I think it got released about five or six years ago. And so, you know, there's this character of Apu on The Simpsons, one of the longest running shows in television. And that's a cartoon. So you could you could argue and say, well, it's a cartoon, right? Why should it matter? Um, it's fiction. But, you know, and the character of Apu is voiced by, um, or was voiced by Hank Azaria, a white American actor. Um, but, you know, the, the problem when you don't have, mul- and so the problem is multiplicity. The problem is Apu for so long on mainstream television was the only representation of a South Asian man consistently to come onto TV screens week after week after week. And if you were a South Asian man growing up in the 80s and and the 90s, maybe the 90s is when The Simpsons first came on the air, what you got were people reciting lines um, in a kind of fake Indian accent at you which was was not recognizing the reality and the authenticity of your culture, but making your culture the butt of a joke. And that's that's the problem, right? The problem is if Apu is, our, is the only thing we're seeing about what Indian culture is like, it is not a authentic or respectful representation of who South Asian people are. That's right. And, and in, in, in film, you know, I think maybe Full Metal Jacket, the Kubrick movie, of, you know, me so horny, 
um, that, that, that phrase became almost sort of, um, like what's up uh, after that, that film, um, which is a horribly sexist and, 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 and racist presentation. And then you take Chinatown, you know, a highly decorated film. And, and how, what does it end? How does it end? The last line of, of Chinatown is forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown, meaning these people, these inscrutable Asians are just unto themselves a bad lot that we have to just, you know, forget it and, 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 and move on. And that I think is, is troubling to say the least. Absolutely. I mean, and I, you know, look, I've, I've taught Chinatown before. I think there's a lot of things going on in that film that are, are really um, innovative. Um, but the use of Chinatown as a symbol of intrigue, of um, depravity, um, of sin. Yeah, of corruption. Yeah, yeah it's, um, it's highly troubling. And it, again, is playing into all of these pre-existing stereotypes that, that you cannot trust Asian people. Yeah. So pivoting a little bit on the last part of who are the Asians in America as excluded by law, misrepresented culturally. One of the, the, the great injustices, I think, to the, to the community is this model minority myth. And if you could talk elaborately about it, um, I would appreciate it because it's something I think that again doesn't get talked about when it gets talked about it's not understood what the negative impact of such a a myth and it's a myth um is on the on on the asian community specifically and then uh, non-asians view of the asian community absolutely so i think it's really important that everyone understands what the origins of the model minority myth is because um the origins are, it's a term not coined by Asians in America. It is a term coined by a white um, sociologist, William Peterson, who in 1966 wrote um, an article for the New York Times. And in and the article, I think, um, and it's been a while since I've read the article, but the article is basically extolling Japanese Americans. So it's like Japanese American success stories, I think the, the title and the article goes on to like talk about how, you know, Japanese Americans were put into these concentration camps during World War II. They went passively. They went without protest, which is actually not true. There was protest. Um, and then they, they got released from these camps and they, you know, and again, they were docile. They, they moved into communities. They didn't congregate with one another, right? They didn't start to create little enclaves of Japanese, um, and they didn't speak English, and they assimilated into American culture, and didn't cause waves, unlike, and this is really important in the piece, unlike Black Americans, right, unlike the way that Black people are creating all sorts of problems in American society, Japanese are the model minority, right, what can Black people learn from Japanese, so Already, there are several problems going on with this article. The, then the term model minority gets taken out of that context, right? People forget that this was the origin story of that term and start to, and it, and it gets recycled in the press and by some Asian Americans themselves, right? I think some Asian Americans have taken pride in the fact that, um, the rates of college education, for example, especially among Indian American, um, Chinese American, and Korean American is very quite high. Um, so, you know, there's this pride in like, yes, we come here, we send our kids to college, um, they assimilate, they become doctors, they become lawyers, they make a lot of money, um, and we're just as American as everyone else. So especially for more recent immigrants who came after the 1965 Immigration Act, when that really kind of opened up immigration from Asia, there's really not a, an understanding of this longer history of racism against Asians in America, because as you said, Michael, we don't know this history. Like it doesn't get taught in school. It's not picked up in popular media. It's not picked up in newspapers, right? What we get in newspapers in the 1960s is William Peterson saying, yay for the Japanese because they don't cause problems. Black people learn from the Japanese. So it is both not true, right? There's so many things in that article that weren't true. There were definitely people who protested, Japanese Americans who protested, um, going, being incarcerated, um, 
And it is also true that Asian American and African Americans have worked in solidarity and in coalition with each other. So again, Peterson was not telling the truth about what was really going on with the modern civil rights movement of the 1960s. Yuri Kochiyama, a Japanese American woman whose family and she herself was incarcerated in Arkansas, um, second generation Japanese American. Um, she and her husband were very active in the civil rights movement. They lived in Harlem. They hosted Malcolm X. She became friends with him. And there's a very famous photograph of her in the Audubon ballroom cradling his head. Um, so getting back to the mob, sorry, I'm taking a little. No, 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 no. That's what I said. This is, uh, I'm, I'm very happy to be a student in your class. So please, please continue. When I have a question, I'll raise my hand. Okay, great. So, you know, but I think it's important to say the name Yuri Kochiyama because people don't know who she is in that photograph. I mean, I think for people who know their civil rights history, the name Yuri Kochiyama will not be so much of a mystery. But the photograph of her in the Audubon Ballroom um, may seem like an anomaly or people may think, oh, that woman looks Japanese, but she must be black, right? Because the assumption would have been that there were only black people who were in the Audubon Ballroom at that time with Malcolm X. Um, so getting back to the model minority myth, um, you know, so it's a, it's a problem for, I would say, two main reasons, multiple reasons, but there's two main ones. One is that it is just simply not true, right? Not every Asian American is going to college, sending their kids to college, assimilating, and is a success story. So what, is, what does that mean if you're an Asian American and you didn't go to college or you're working class or you're really struggling? Um, so it's this really terrible burden of feeling like there's this whole thing you have to live up to. When in reality, if you look at the statistics, and there's a wonderful website um, run by Karthik Ramakrishnan called AAPI Data. And when you look at the data, Southeast Asian population, so Hmong, Laotian, um, and Burmese in particular, have some of the lowest um, literacy rates of English, have some of the lowest high school graduation rates, let alone, you know, this is not a population sending their kids to college, um, and are really living below the poverty line. Um, at higher percentage rates based on population. So not in terms of raw numbers, because there's, you know, far fewer Burmese people in the United States. Um, you know, of course, the other problem is most people don't even know the language that Burmese people speak, and that they speak multiple languages. Karen is one of the main languages. They don't get services because we barely have services for people who are Mandarin speaking or Korean speaking, let alone speaking Karen. Um, and then, of course, the, the other main problem is, you know, William Peterson is trying to divide black people from Asians in that piece. So it's a way of not just it's a way of not just praising Asians, but it's a way of pointing to black people, Latinx people, indigenous people and saying, why don't you be more like the Asians? They're quiet. They shut up. They went past. We locked them up in camps and they didn't protest. That's the way that you should be acting. It's, it's kind of like the critique of Colin Kaepernick, right, where people are saying, like, why is he taking a knee and protesting? Like, that's disrespectful. But then, you know, when you have people going out into the streets and protesting after George Floyd, they're also similarly saying, like, that's disrespectful, right? So what form of protest by Black and brown people will we actually accept as, as respectful in this country? Right. None. But the other, the other thing that's interesting um, about the model American myth is that it's a typical sort of ploy of a majority culture to pit one minority group against another minority group. I mean, blacks and Jews were historically united in, in the civil rights movement. Then this dialogue came up of, well, we're antag those communities are antagonistic and that creates divisions. So, so those who should be unified in their coherent action against the oppression that they both feel now are trying to compete with one another, which serves the, the master uh, class just fine, thank you, if you will. Absolutely. I mean, I'm so glad you brought that up. And I think that, you know, especially, you know, to go back to your early question about like, like, I think a lot of people wouldn't understand that when I'm bringing up Oak Creek, I see Sikh Americans, the vast majority of whom in the United States are Indian American. But I also want to be really clear, like much like the category of being Jewish, which is both a religious category and a cultural category and ethnic category, Sikh functions in a really similar way, right, where anyone could convert to Sikhism. But it is, you know, it is a religion that was, you know, came out of India, 
and that the vast majority of people who are Sikhs would, would most likely identify as Indian, Indian or South Asian um, in some way. So it's sort of functioning both as kind of ethnicity as well as religion. And of course, you know, it, it has a cultural inflection to it as well. And I think that's, again, one of the problems of race and one of the, one of the issues within white supremacy, that white supremacy in the United States doesn't actually require whiteness to, um, to thrive, right? So this is one of the reasons, as you were saying, Michael, white supremacy can be used as the underlying pin to pit groups against one another who really have a history of working in alliance, as you mentioned, Black and Jewish people and Black and Asians. Yeah, yeah. I read a quote in, they're talking about the model minority myth. They said it's horrible in a lot of ways, but one of the most horrible ways is that it renders us, talking about the Asian community, it renders us invisible in discussions about racism in America. Yeah. Yeah, people think that, you know, like that. And, and let me be clear, not every Asian American is an activist, nor do Asians in America actually know even this history. So I would I would guess that some people who are Asian American identified who are listening to me have no idea that there was a riot in Watsonville, California of Filipino farm workers or may not really understand the intricacies of the Japanese American internment. So there's ways in which we all need to be better informed and educated about all of these issues. Right. So let's let's talk a little bit about the Asian American, contemporary Asian American experience. I read I read something by Amara Walker. She writes, the problem is that many of us Asians in America have too often walked away from the racist encounters rather than speaking up and out about it. Admittedly, she's saying about herself, I adapted to learned helplessness, redirecting my anger to proving my worth as an American, to prove that I belong despite the way that I look. I unfairly placed burden of proof on me. And it seemed to me that it was, uh, you know, gives me goose flesh when I read it, but it seems like it some way kept encapsulates the Asian American experience. And maybe I'm wrong about that, but if you would talk to generally what it's like to be an Asian American today. Yeah, I, I read Amara's in, in these, piece. In the terms, I'm sorry, in the terms that we're, I don't mean, so, in, in the terms about which we are speaking. Sure. No, of course. Um, you know, and, and Amara's piece is really powerful. I read, I read it. Um, and um, I think there are a lot of, I think there are a lot of Asian Americans, especially Asian American journalists who are coming out with think pieces um, in the wake of Atlanta. Um, there was one by Richard Liu that I recently read um, in which he talked about himself as an ugly American because he had embraced exactly the kinds of things that Amar is talking about. Um, this belief in his Americanness and this belief that he's a, he's a better American and a better Asian American because he was born here and speaks fluent English than those who are more recently arrived. Um, and I, I think that for, for many Asian Americans, and I don't mean to paint with too broad a brush, but unfortunately, these are the terms we use when we are talking about, you know, groups that encompass over 50 nations. Um, there is this idea vis-a-vis the model minority myth that if you keep your head down, um, then you can succeed, right? And, and that success is largely tied to money, right? So it's largely tied to money and status. So, what does success mean in terms of a model minority myth? It means a college degree. It means a good job. It means a house and, you know, owning things and having a title and feeling like, you know, you are important within, within the structures of the American dream that we are told. Um, I think the, when that gets interrupted as it has the year that we've all been in lockdown, it forces Asian Americans to really take stock. And I think, this has been happening, like, so the anti-Asian racism that led to Atlanta, again, really isn't anything new. It started in the 19th century, but in the past year, it became acute and steadily increasing from March of 2020. And it's exacerbated by the language and the rhetoric of the previous White House administration that still continues this to this day. There are still members of the GOP, including the former president who refused to call COVID-19 by its officially sanctioned name given by the World Health Organization, but instead will say 
the phrase China virus as a reinforcement of blame, because that's really what this is about. This is a reinforcement of blame that China is to blame for the virus and thus Chinese people and thus anyone in the United States that we think may look like they're Chinese. Um, and so I think this has been a moment of reckoning for a lot of Asians in America when they've realized because of the abuse, the verbal abuse and the physical abuse and the violence. Um, and that, again, that's what we saw get, get unleashed in Atlanta, that we're not the model minority myth, that speaking unaccented Asian English doesn't make us immune from white supremacy and from violence and racism. That's right, especially when the racists, the right, white, white supremacists have the view of the Asian community as a one big monolith. They, they, they wouldn't know that the Chinese were allies of the United States in the Second World War and Japanese were opponents. They're just Asians and, and, and gooks and other, and coolies and other pejorative terms that, that dehumanize them, which makes their treatment, their dehumanizing treatment of them sort of acceptable to them psychologically. Absolutely. My, my grandfather actually was um, an international banker. And during World War II, his job was actually to work with the U.S. government um, as, you know, kind of helping to exchange money between the U.S. government that was in China at the time and the Kuomintang, the national government. Um, I mean, yeah. that's why he had to flee, right? Because once once Mao came into power, I mean, he's he's a capitalist for sure. And he's been collaborating with the U.S. government. And so that's, that's how my paternal family ended up in the United States. Yeah. So, so your uh, CNN.com piece, I think, is terrific and it should be mandatory reading um, in order to get a driver's license or something, <laughs> something like that. You're too kind. I, and, and you write um, what it's like to be an Asian American woman. So we talked a little bit just now about what it's like to be Asian American. Of course, these are broad terms and there are exceptions that prove rules and, and I get it. We both get it. Um, but in terms of the conversation we're having about sort of race in America, as it pertains to the Asian community, you're right. Asian women suffer a particular invidious description to be an Asian woman in America means you just can't be what you are a fully enfranchised human being. It means you are a blank screen on which others project their stories, especially too often their sexualized fantasies, because U.S. culture has long presented Asian women as sexualized objects for white male enjoyment. Again, if that doesn't, you know, send chills up anyone's spine, then they're not the type of human being that I want to associate with. But can you, can you flesh that out? Because it's a very powerful a very powerful statement. Yeah, thank you. I um, so I was I did a um, I did an interview with um, a local NPR show, Colorado Matters, and they asked me to listen in on the segment before me with a young Vietnamese American woman, twenty two years old, um, and then comment on it. And in her piece, she talked about being sixteen years old when she was propositioned for the first and not only time by a um, white American veteran who said to her, you look just like the girls I knew in Nam, right? Short for Vietnam. And it made me remember the first time that I was propositioned by an older white male veteran, which was when I was 14 at my local mall. And it wasn't until hearing her story that I realized, oh, I, that's, that's my story, right? That happened to me, but I had normalized it, right? I know that sounds totally crazy to say that I normalized being propositioned by an older white man at the age of 14, but we're talking about the 1980s and we're also talking about me having a multiracial group of friends and getting hit on by older men of, of various races was not an uncommon experience for me, um, which points to the ways that young girls are sexualized and young girls are um, really vulnerable to harassment and abuse. Um, and I think young Asian girls or anyone who is presumed to be Asian 
are vulnerable in a very specific way because of um, the sexualized stereotypes rooted in um, U.S. immigration, right? Rooted in the fact that Chinese women were brought here and then they became synonymous with sex work from the time they were here. And then um, it gets reinforced with all of the various wars in Asia when you have sex workers that are connected to U.S. military bases, as, as we do. And by the way, this isn't unique to the United States. This is kind of a global problem in the way that women are objectified and sexualized. And, you know, I could talk about the way that the Japanese Imperial Army enslaved Korean women. So um, what, it, what it has meant for me to be an Asian woman is that I am coming, I am always butting heads with two things. The way I feel, which is I feel like I'm a fully enfranchised human being, right? Like I feel like I should have the right and I do have the right to go about the world the way that I want to go about the world um, instead of the way that the world treats me, which is depending on um, the intersectional oppression I happen to be facing that day, um, reminding me of my Asian-ness, or really specifically because it's not like I can unpack or untangle my Asian-ness from my, you know, from my gendered, my physical, you know, my kind of external markers of gender, which in my case, because I know many people are listening to a podcast, like I am presenting as a cisgender femme straight woman, and that's what I am. Um, you know, like I, I'm just automatically sexualized. And, that, you know, listen, I'm 51 years old, and I'm still facing this kind of part of my language bullshit, right? Um, and I'm kind of waiting for the day when it stops. And I think it's it's not going to stop because this isn't about, you know, this kind of sexualization is about power. It's not about, you know, what anyone looks like. Um, and it's about um, people feeling like they, they have the right, total strangers feeling like they have the right to go up to, to young Asian American girls and women and harass them because of this reinforcement in, in society through films, because we have no other representation of, you know, for so long, right, we've had no other representation of Asian women in popular media, other than to say that they exist as this fantasy for the consumption of men, predominantly white men. Yeah, so the Lotus Blossom, Lotus Blossom Dragon Lady stereotype. Right, in one case, you have a passive Asian woman, Right. Right. In the other case, you have a fiery Asian woman, but in both cases, they're completely sexualized. Right. And ultimately to be conquered, whether it's James Bond, who will conquer the villainous Asian woman and, and bring her to, to his bed, or it's the Lotus Blossom who is there uh, for that purpose from, from the outset. Pretty, pretty terrible stuff. So you, you said, um, in, in turning to Atlanta and turning to, to this year in particular, that there has been been a spike. I wanted to just go over some of the statistics so we are clear what's going on here. Um, Asian American hate crimes in the United States up in this past year, 150% during, during the pandemic. 3,800 anti-Asian racist incidents takes place, um, up 68%, specifically targeting Women, New York Police Department see an eightfold rise in crimes against Asians and a, a public policy IPL, IPSOS poll says that three in 10 Americans still blame China for the, the coronavirus um, pandemic. Now, you're right to say that Trump bears a huge, I think, I'll say huge, some will say partial, but I think he has a huge responsibility in the China flu language, the Kung flu, which is more racist still um, language. And so somehow I'm losing my business or I'm losing my freedom is because of you, Asian people, and therefore you're going to get what you deserve. Um, and, and so there is this this horrible horrible spike in, in, in crime. And maybe that's what um, is attributable to um, this fellow in Atlanta, but I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'd like to have your take on sort of like, where does the hate come from? What, you know, how, how, how can this be? 
in your in your in your view? Yeah, and I I guess I want us to think about the word hate because I think if we're concentrating on hate, it may obscure what I think is the the deeper problem. And the deeper problem has to do with the quote that you gave Michael earlier in my CNN piece, which is I am a fully enfranchised human being. Um and I I need not defend that statement. Right? So in other words, what society would try and have me think is that I have to somehow demonstrate through language, through ability, through um, intelligence, um, through complicity to certain U.S. norms that I am deserving of being a fully enfranchised human being because as a woman and as someone of Asian descent, that has historically been questioned. And I feel like as a fully enfranchised human being that I don't need to do that. I may have to do it, but I don't feel like I need to do it. I feel like I deserve to live my life as a fully enfranchised human being. So what I think the language of hate obscures is the dehumanization, right? That's why I say, even though I don't know that there's a causality between the rise of the use of China virus, which I agree that Donald Trump certainly um, played a hand in. What, how much of a responsibility? It's unclear, but he, he led the, he was president of the United States for four years, right? He's a leader. People looked to him to take their cues. If he had wanted us all to wear masks, he could have said that, right? He could have said really clearly, like it's, this is, we're in a public health crisis. We're in a global pandemic. The best practices is for us to wear masks. He didn't do that. And now masks have become a divisive political sign instead of what they are, a public health um, measure to slow the spread of the virus. And very similarly, he could have said, look, this disease emerged out of Wuhan, China, but it is because we, you know, because it's a disease and it's not something that we can simply contain materially, of course it's going to spread because, because of the rapidity of infection. And because we, you know, at the time when it first emerged, we didn't know, was it droplets? Was it, you know, we just didn't have a sense of the course of the disease and how it was transmitted and how easily spreadable it was. And so instead what he does is he says, you know, my, any response I'm making as the leader of the United States is, is unimpeachable because it's not my fault. The fault of COVID-19, the fault of businesses closing and us going into lockdown and, you know, the silly recommendation of wearing masks is China. It's the nation of China. And by the way, China bashing is definitely not new, right? China bashing has been around for centuries and in our most modern time, you know, it's all about, you know, the economics of trade and, you know, political competition. So the idea of bashing China is entirely not new and in, in fact is playing into this, you know, more prevalent discourse of China being a threat, particularly a security threat. And so when he says China is to blame, and so I'm going to reinforce that by calling it the China virus instead of COVID-19, but I ha- because I want people to really know that there is not an insufficient federal response. It's actually China's fault that this disease happened in the first place. Of course, people are, you know, we're, we're in fight or flight mode. So our most basic primal instincts as human beings is to either take flight or to fight. So when I'm hearing the president of the United States, and I'm a fan of the president of the United States saying, hey, you're angry that you lost your job and you can't go to your favorite restaurant and your kids aren't in school. It's not my fault. It's China's fault. You're, you, if you may be the kind of person who's going to be like taking out your frustration on the first person that you can identify as possibly being Chinese, whether that person actually comes from China or not. And that's the way racism operates. It's a flattening. So that's why you have a family of four in Texas stabbed by a Latino man. And again, as I said, white supremacy does not require whiteness. So the Latino man stabbing the Asian family, you could say like, oh, how can that be an instance of white supremacy? I mean, he's being influenced by the rhetoric of the president and other people like Mike Pompeo going on the news and again saying China virus. And then the next day, studies have shown there was a spike in um, incidences of um, verbal harassment and physical harassment against Asians. So I, I think it's not just hate that we're talking about. It's the ability of seeing that it's okay to treat another human being 
as less than human. Yeah. And as a lawyer, I use the word hate because the evaluation of um, what the prosecutors will do in the Atlanta spa shooting murders is, will they designate it a hate crime, which carries with it additional penalties? And I remember right after the events, the I think it was Sheriff who said, this this fellow with his so-called sex addiction had a very bad day. I mean, who can say that um, without, you know, sort of total embarrassment? Who can say it, period, um, to not understand that this was exactly uh, a hate crime in the, in the legal sense, a targeted crime against Asian-American women, you know, sort of full stop. But perhaps the fact that they didn't call it that at the outset, it will get charged that way, I believe, is um, indicative of the manner in which the Asian-American women were viewed by law enforcement. Well, Michael, I have a question, if you don't mind, can I ask you a question as as a legal expert? So um, I, I, everything you're saying, I, I agree with. And I understand why, I mean, I certainly understand why everyone was upset by the sheriff and the statements that he had to say. And I, I think I don't need to unpack that more than has already been unpacked, right? Um, although I'm happy to. But here's the thing that I was always, I've been puzzled by. Um, so I understand that, that in order for something to be seen as racially motivated, right, and thus rise to the level of a hate crime in terms of being litigated, that that might be hard to prove based on some of the statements that the shooter himself has made. But based on his statements, it seems clear that he targeted women and that they're a protected class under federal law. So wouldn't that rise to the level of hate crime, right? So in other words, why are we concentrating on just the race aspect when the race aspect can't be taken out of the gender aspect? Yeah, and and it's a great question. And I'm not sure that I know the answer to whether or not women as a protected class um, uh, under... um, Georgia law um, are covered by their domestic, you know, their state hate crime laws. It may be that it requires some level of ethnicity on top of gender. I, so I, d- I don't know. But if their law were to say that a crime that was perpetrated against a woman can, under Georgia hate crimes law, be a hate crime, then then the question is fair. Why Why do we have to bother to add on this second layer of Asian woman when woman is sufficient. And I just don't know the answer to, to whether or not that is, it, it is the case. Cause I think rape, which is a hateful crime may not be a hate crime as these types of statutes um, define it. Yeah. And I, you know, I want to be really clear that I believe it is a hate crime, right? I believe it is a, I, I believe it's a racial hate crime against these women because they were Asian. But I, but I think that it's really important because I'm a scholar to point out that we cannot divorce the identities of these women, um, from their woman status, right? So in other words, yes, they were targeted not just because they were Asian, right? Like he could, like in other words, he could have gone into any number of businesses with Asian men. He didn't do that. He could have gone into any number of businesses that that had women and that had and that actually he could have targeted specifically women sex workers of any race or background. He didn't do that. He specifically targeted Asian women. And so I that is a you know, that's a particularly unique kind of mix of um sexism and misogyny and racism that that he's employing. But the reason I'm bringing up the gender is because, um, well, yes, I live my life particularly as an Asian American woman, and we can't divorce race from that calculation. One of the things that I think many, if not all women in U.S. society face is the rampant misogyny and the rampant sexism that gets taken for granted to the point when when the sheriff is saying these things, people are like, oh, yeah, he has a sex addiction. And so that's going to explain away killing seven women. Um, and oh yeah, it's okay to treat women in this matter because, um, you know, Michael, until you pointed that out, like, why isn't, oh, why isn't sexual assault against women treated like a hate crime, right? Because again, if we're treating the category of women as a protected class and you have a man who is raping a woman specifically because she's a woman, it would seem to me that that's a hate crime, right? Because he is singling her out 
on the basis of gender as a protected class. But I think it speaks volumes about the ways that U.S. society continues to treat women as, I mean, I think that the phrase second-class citizen comes around, but I think it's, it's deeper than that. We, I think women in U.S. society get treated as if we're not human. I, I truly actually believe that. Um, and I'm here to really fight that as much as I can. Oh, that's good. That's good. We all, we all should be brothers in arms or brothers and sisters in arms in, in, in that fight. Um, we're running out of time. I want to talk a little bit about where we go from here, because this has been educational, but, you know, at the same time, a little bit sad, depressing, you know, sort of like, oh, my God, um, sort of um, conversation. Uh, President Biden went down to Emory University in Atlanta after the, the shootings, and he, and he said, hate can have no safe harbor in America. Our silence is complicity. We cannot be complicit. And so that invites the question of, well, fine, nice speech. What do we do? What do we do next? And so do you have a prescription from a short-term perspective and then a, a, a longer lastings solutions perspective that we can close out our conversation with? Absolutely. So the first thing is, you know, um, be like Michael Zeldin. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning like you reached out to me, right? You reached out to me after you read the CNN piece and you said, hey, this, this person seems like she has some things to say about Asian Americans and Asian American women. Um, you know, I applaud every single journalist, podcaster, commentator who is inviting Asian American journalists and academics and activists to speak right now because we've been living this and speaking about this and teaching about this for a long time. And so, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if there was like a podcast challenge, right? If you were like, hey, I invited an Asian American woman to speak on this. How about all my other fellow podcasters start to invite Asian American experts who can share in their stories, right? Because I've only, you know, we've only scratched the surface. There are so many other stories, so much more history to delve into. And that's the other thing. This shouldn't be a one-off, right? Atlanta was not a one-off. Learning about and hearing the multitude of Asian American stories is not a one-off. I haven't talked about Pacific Islanders barely. Um, I haven't talked about non-binary people. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want anyone to misconstrue that my focus on women is in any way trying to reinforce a gender binary. It's only to suggest in relation to Atlanta, the particular ways in which I think these women's lives were made more precarious. But there's so many more stories, right? And so if we care and we want to center Asian American voices and not forget this history and not forget that, I mean, listen, I'm not surprised Atlanta happened. I think other things like that can happen. I mean, Boulder, the fact that there was a mass shooting in Boulder that happened less than a week, of course, there's just more violence that's out there. How do we fight that violence, the hate, the dehumanization? We start to see Asian Americans like they are, human beings. So that means learning about Asian Americans as well as other people who aren't just straight white guys, right? Learning this rich, rich history and then talking about it, right? Again, being like Michael Zeldin, right? Having, you know, having conversations God for, with people. God forbid. Let me just interject. <laughs> we don't need more Michael Zeldin. One, one is good enough, Ron. We need people like you who want to amplify the stories and the voices of other people, right? Where you're using your privilege and your power to do good. That's what we want. We want people who have positions of privilege and power to say, here's, here are these stories that are unacknowledged. Here's this history that we didn't learn. And that's the other thing, right? We want to get legislation where we can get help for K through 12 teachers to, to include this in their curriculum and say, this is an important part of U.S. history. And it's ugly at times, but we shouldn't be afraid of confronting the worst parts of U.S. history if we want the United States to be better. And so that's what it means to be an anti-racism advocate. And the other thing is this. If you're Asian American and you care about what happens to Asian Americans, that's great. But if you're going to be an anti-racism advocate for Asian Americans, you have to be an anti-racism advocate for Black people, for Latinx people, for Indigenous people. And by the way, you have to start to care about women and LGBTQ plus people and disabled people. All of this is deeply connected, but it's something we can do. All of this is a choice, right? So I'm not more anti-racist than Michael. We can both be anti-racism advocates because we are choosing this as people who care and who want the United States to be better. So I think that's a wonderful note on which to end this terrific conversation. Professor Ho, 
you're a dynamo. Um, and I so appreciate having learned so much from you today. And I hope maybe in the coming weeks and months we can have, um, we, if we did Asians in America 101 today, maybe we can do Asians in America 201. Um, once we've learned and absorbed all that you taught us today, we can come back and get the, the graduate level um, class. Happy, happy to, and happy to recommend other voices, right? And, and, and let's get this hashtag challenge, right? Like, be like Michael Zeldin. <laughs> well, we, we could take that under advisement. <laughs> Be like Jennifer Ho, maybe is the, is, 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 is the better one. So, Professor, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you today. It's been delightful to be here. And thank you, everyone, for taking time to listen. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.